Welcome to The Bit and our mini-series, Sustainability, Our New Standard, where we explore the ways that sustainability across climate change, COVID-19, and other factors is transforming investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We've talked a lot about how investor preferences have shifted towards more sustainable companies, but what does that actually mean? How do you know that a company's commitments translates to their actions? And what's the investment case for choosing them anyway? Today, we speak to Eric Van Nostrand, Head of Research for Sustainable Investments. Eric walks through what it means to do research in sustainability, what's not so well understood, where it's headed, and why we have to get creative to figure out which companies are actually doing it right. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, MC. It's great to be here. So speaking of here, we're actually sitting in our office in Midtown Manhattan. I don't think many people have been here since mid-March. No. How does it feel to be back? I cannot believe it. There's a sign about 15 feet from us that says, see you in April. So sad. Rather sad reflection on how we thought about the world in February. So as someone whose job it is to predict the future, do you think we'll be back here in April 2021? I'm going to take exception to the predicting the future thing. <laughs> We're rational investors based on data and science. <laughs> Got it. But I think efforts to predict the return to office have been generally disappointed over the past couple months. So I'm not going to dive back into that business right now. Okay, nice job avoiding my first question. So we can talk now about your day job and your area of current expertise. You started a new role as head of research for sustainable investments, in addition to your role as head of multi-asset strategies. What does that involve? What does it mean to conduct research in sustainability in 2020? Sustainable research is really about the why and how by which ESG issues affect our investments. It's about understanding the specific transmission mechanisms by which things like climate risk, social engagement of various companies, and the different ways in which companies govern themselves manifest themselves for their investors and their clients. It's obviously a lot of hype right now around sustainable investing. We spend a lot of time talking about that. But my job is really to go underneath the hype and apply the same standards of investment research that BlackRock applies to its traditional portfolio management arm and apply that to sustainability and figure out why is it that climate risk is investment risk? Why is it the companies engaging better with their stakeholders, with their clients, with their customers, with their employees, all helps their outperformance in the long run? So in that context, then, how is sustainability research any different from research on more traditional investing categories? Well, there's a lot of reasons that it's a lot harder. When you just think about it at a high level, it sounds a lot easier. It seems intuitive that firms that are better prepared for the climate transition, firms that have more sound, long-termist governance procedures, firms that are more socially engaged in their communities might do well in the long run. But there's a severe deficiency in our ability to prove that based on historical data, because we're in the middle of a sea change. We're in the middle of a structural rotation in the way the investment community thinks about sustainability generally. I love to dig into the historical data and prove out all the different investment hypotheses. And if I have a thesis about how central banks are going to respond to ongoing cultural developments in the emerging world, I can prove that out with data from 2001 and 2002. I can't do that in sustainability because markets didn't reward sustainable companies in the decades behind us. So we have to think an awful lot more creatively about the way that sustainability is going to be rewarded and penalized by markets in the future. And that takes new kinds of research relative to the norm. So you mentioned that it's challenging because you have a limited 
historical perspective or sort of time period of data because the social context has changed and the market context has changed. But it's also because some of that data probably may not have been available, right? So how is the information available to have these sort of views evolved? Yeah, so what MC might not tell you here on the BID podcast is that her day job involves paying close attention to sustainable data. And she's very artfully pushed this conversation along in that direction. (laughs) But I'm glad she did, because this is really central to the research question we deal with as sustainable investors. We cannot invest at all without good data, without understanding what are the environmental, social, and governance-related implications or attributes of a particular company or country or sector that we're investing in. And the evolution of sustainable data, as UMC know better than anyone, has been very rocky and very slow. And it's only really in the past couple of years that we've been able to get a more holistic view from a lot of different external providers and from some of our own internal big data-driven analytics to really get a better sense of that data. And if we kind of drop the ball on driving forward, understanding sustainable data, we don't have a shot in the long-term game of how to invest on this stuff. That's really central to getting the question right. And we could drop the ball, but it could also get a lot better in the very short term. So for example, even since Larry Fink wrote a letter urging companies to disclose sustainability accounting standards boards, disclosures and information, we've seen like a 400% increase in just the past three quarters, the number of companies that are doing that. So it seems Mm -hmm. like more companies are disclosing. In September of this year, there were a number of calls for convergence from some of those different organizations that set those frameworks. So what's your view as to whether that's going to get easier or harder and how might sustainability research be different even in a year from now? Well, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic about that. And the most important run is investor demand. Our focus on sustainability is not something we came up with in a vacuum. It's not something we were sitting around on an idle Tuesday afternoon and decided it would be cool (laughs) if we started thinking about carbon instead of currencies, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that reflects the changing investor demand as we see it around us. And we are not going at this alone. We are representing a broad investor community and a broad client community that recognizes the importance in both the short term, as we've seen this year in the way sustainability has outperformed the COVID pandemic, but also in the long term about the importance of these kinds of thinking, this kinds of research strand to the broader financial markets. And that tailwind creates the demand to put pressure on companies, to put pressure on third-party reporting agencies and incentives for there to be more third-party reporting agencies to create these data. I think it's pretty clear that firms that aren't playing ball here, firms that aren't disclosing in a way that allows us to come to a good view on their sustainability characteristics, are going to be penalized by the market. They're going to be embarrassed. And I think that's an encouraging thing for our efforts, but also for the quality of broad financial market assessments of these issues. So looking back a couple of years, before you came to BlackRock, you worked at the White House during the Obama administration. You were an economist with the Council of Economic Advisors. A couple of years ago, how much was sustainability research on your radar when you were in that role? We've talked about how the conversation has changed in a lot of ways, but your job then was to be anticipating kind of future economic policy and where things might go. So was this yeah. part of what you were thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. I was there during President Obama's second term, which was not a time when the financial sector was nearly as focused on sustainability issues as it is today. But we were thinking an awful lot about the transmission mechanism between really all these issues, between climate risk, certainly elements of stakeholder capitalism, 
and the way that governance issues are adjudicated from a policy perspective. We were focused on how they transmitted themselves to the macro economy. I wasn't spending my days necessarily thinking about how that passed through to financial markets, but I was spending an awful lot of time thinking about how it translated to growth and business formation and innovation and productivity growth across the U.S. economy. And I do find myself thinking about a lot of those same transmission mechanisms when trying to figure out how we can apply that logic to investments. And so what were some of those views then? What were you really right about? And what do you think you'd think about differently now? Well, let's focus on climate to begin with. It's obvious who the big carbon emitters were. The big oil and gas majors, other large manufacturers who weren't investing in clean technology, who weren't investing in alternative energy. And it was kind of easy to identify them as the weak spots of the source of climate risk in the economy and companies that were focused on alternative energy sources as the good actors. And of course, that's still basically true, but that's not something the market has missed. Now we have to think a bit more creatively about how do we find opportunities and risks that the market in general maybe hasn't zeroed in on. So we're looking past things like who is the biggest emitter today and instead using alternative data, comparing how companies talk about their strategies with the actual statistics on how they're evolving their carbon emissions. We're focused on changes in emissions rather than levels of emissions. And what I think that does is that allows us to spot opportunities on the margins. Companies that aren't obviously bad actors, aren't obviously good actors. We're staying on climate for a second. Do you think that climate risk as an investment risk is going to be internalized, adopted, maybe more quickly than we thought? I mean, do you think that next year we'll see many and most investors even incorporating that in their investment decision making? Yeah, so I think there's really strong evidence that it's already happening. I don't think it's done by any stretch. But the fact that investors are already starting to catch on to this means we can't be lazy and say, just lead into those good companies that we know well year after year. We have to be more and more creative about thinking, all right, where are the new opportunities going to be? Where is the company that doesn't talk that much about sustainability, but we see in their happier employees, mm -hmm. we see in their lower employee turnover, mm -hmm. we see in the way that they have good reputations in the press, that they're doing good things and likely to outperform. And that kind of creativity is, I think, what's going to animate the second phase of success for sustainable investing. And you're sort of suggesting that the second phase of success, yes, there's a lot in the E of ESG, but yeah. that there's a lot more of precision that could be applied in certainly the S when you're talking about employee happiness, attrition, et cetera. What are some of the more interesting questions in the S of ESG or sort of frame of stakeholder capitalism more broadly? You zeroed in on what I basically want my central takeaway from this conversation to be. <laughs> Great. If you've been asleep today, <laughs> just listen to this one sentence. This is the bottom line here. I think climate, while not completely understood, and we have a lot more to learn, the wool has not been pulled over the eyes of the investment community generally. The appreciation of climate risks as investment risks is not a secret. However, I think the actual value of sustainability defined as quote-unquote S is much, much higher than is widely appreciated. S conventionally stands for social. I prefer to twist it around a little bit and imagine that it stands for stakeholder capitalism. And sometimes it sounds a little gimmicky, to be honest with you. What do you, you know, mean? Like it sounds like CEOs at Davos are all trying to get credit and good headlines? You know, I think stakeholder capitalism in general is something that it's very easy 
for CEOs and business leaders in general to point to if they are tempted to just tell a good story about themselves. Mm -hmm. That is not a reason not to pursue stakeholder issues from an investment perspective. That's a reason to be really careful about how you pursue stakeholder capitalism from an investment perspective. Because we have to watch that we're not just leaning into companies that are talking about it. We need to make sure we're leaning into companies that are doing it. And what that means is, again, to come back to where I started this conversation, focusing on transmission mechanisms, focusing on the why and how by which stakeholder capitalism affects investment outcomes. So it's not just about pick the nicest company. It's about pick the company that has the best social or stakeholder-driven attribute in a way that's going to be financially material. It's going to be related to outperformance. Mm -hmm. We haven't touched on governance at all. What do you think are some of the more interesting questions? So governance is something I always smile when we talk about as being a new investment topic. <laughs> Companies have been thinking about who's a better governed company for decades as public equity markets shift in terms of the changing popularity of activist shareholders and the evolving legal questions on the power of shareholders to change corporate direction, we again need to think more creatively about the way markets are going to respond to that. So issues that are a little bit new, that are different from kind of conventional governance investment processes, issues focused on audit management, tax risk management, board independence, are going to be a bigger part of the conversation than they have been before. Mark is used to reward companies for having captive boards, mm -hmm. and that's something that clearly isn't going to work in decades to come. Mm -hmm. You talked about what sustainability is, what it is, and it's information, different perspective, but that whole question of the definition is kind of problematic and complicated right now. Yeah, it's difficult. So when you're talking to clients and they're asking you, what do we think sustainability is? One, what do you say, obviously? And then second is, what has surprised you about some of the misperceptions that are out there? So when I think about what sustainability is, I think about the subset of environmental, social, and governance issues that we expect to drive our performance in financial markets over the decades to come. And it's very important that we never lose sight of that investment lens as we go about this work. We are not taking our eye off the ball that our fundamental fiduciary duty at the end of the day is to deliver our clients the best possible investment returns. The kind of old idea that we're sacrificing return to invest in companies that make us feel better about ourselves or companies that we think are better for the world, we are investing in sustainable investing because we think it is better for our clients to be aligned in the long run with companies that are aligned with a future in which the market is going to reward companies with a more acute understanding of climate risks, of social issues, et cetera. We have seen a tremendous amount of demand from our clients for products that are aligned with companies that think hard about these issues. And that's not, in our view, a fad. That's something that reflects a sea change in the way investors are thinking about this. So have we seen that? Let's take a couple of examples. Like, for example, when a company has announced a net zero commitment, does, yeah. has it been affecting their share prices? And for how long? Should CEOs feel like this is about more than headlines, basically, or just doing the right thing? Even though I understand from our perspective, we have to make decisions as a fiduciary. Yeah. For managers, how should they be thinking about it? Yeah. I view the COVID pandemic as providing a very compelling natural experiment about where investors turn when the near-term outlook for not just growth, inflation, policy, and typical macroeconomic impulses, 
but really when the near-term outlook for the very stability of our financial system and the way we interact with one another at work and at home are changing, where do investors turn? Sustainable companies outperformed meaningfully in 2020, and they outperformed across a lot of different dimensions. More environmentally aware companies outperformed, more socially aware companies outperformed. And in my view, that's pretty compelling evidence. It's a small sample size. It's an anecdote. It's not data. But in a world where anecdotes can help us generate a bit more forward-looking evidence than the historical data can, I think it's pretty compelling evidence that these sorts of factors are not things that investors look past anymore. And while that may have been the case in the 90s and the 2000s, hence our lack of reliance on historical data to illustrate these points, there's a lot more conviction going forward that sustainability is not some kind of short-term fad. So can you give me a more specific example where that was the case? That's not a company or that wasn't a sector where we might expect that, like big tech, for example. Yeah. So I'll point to a couple of things. The low carbon companies outperformed 2020 because we were talking a lot more about climate change in the context of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. We measure readiness for the low carbon transition in a very different way than that. We're more interested in signals that companies are taking and strategies that companies are taking rather than the facts of how much they emit today to show that they're ready for a transition to a low-carbon economy. And we do that in a number of different ways. We look at short-term changes in their carbon emissions. We look at how well they manage their water usage, how well they manage their waste usage, their investments in clean technology. All of those issues are things where we have empirical research that gives us confidence that those companies are better prepared for a transition to a low-carbon economy, even if in some cases they're emitting a lot today. Our views on who's ready for a low-carbon transition by those metrics are actually rather uncorrelated, meaning they tell a very different story than just the list of who emits the most carbon today. And despite those two lists, who emits the most carbon today and who we think is most ready for the low-carbon transition being very different, both of those outperformed this year. Mm. And my point is that very different ideas of how to think about sustainability worked quite broadly this year. One thing I really want to get across that I think is very important to the way we think about this is we cannot lose our conventional investor skepticism about these ideas, particularly in a topic like ESG, where there is an awful lot of hype in the market, justifiable excitement, but excitement nonetheless, that gets people very excited about these topics and does risk tempting us to kind of leap too quickly to the conclusion that these things work. Each statement I'm making today about things that we believe is something that works is something that's rooted in empirical evidence that we've investigated, relationships and correlations between sustainable investment strategies and other outcomes, other transmission mechanisms to economic growth and to earnings growth at the company level. And all that gives us more confidence that these things we're leaning into work. But it's very important to do that in a nuanced way that's cognizant of what specific thing we're thinking about rather than just naively leaning into the quote-unquote good headline companies, if you will. Mm -hmm. I'm tempted to just sort of ask, is it unfair to just say that sustainability is about reframing your time horizon in some way? Is it about a more long-term approach? Or is it about thinking that there are fundamentally different things that are going to define value, particularly as more of a company's values determined by intangible things? It's a great question, and it's really a central question in sustainability research right now. It's certainly the case that we have more confidence in the medium term, like year over year outperformance 
of sustainability-related factors than we do of the short-term outperformance. So if I've identified a company that I think is more ready for the low-carbon transition than its peer, I'm generally not going to have a lot of confidence that it'll beat its peer over the next month Mm -hmm. because this is something that takes a long time. You might ask, how do we get the medium-term confidence without much historical data? Well, because we do have empirical confidence in transmission mechanisms and relationships between these sustainability attributes and other data related to operating efficiency and other kind of corporate-level data that we think produces returns in the medium term. But there's been much less work done in that short-term question for sustainability. I think it's an open question, a difficult question. It's one I want to approach with an open, skeptical mind as a researcher. So you mentioned a couple of research questions that you're excited about. Is there one that's just too hard to touch that you think is like your 2022 question? It's not too hard to touch, but it's a question that we'll never be sure we can get absolutely right. And that's the question of scope three carbon emissions. So scope three carbon emissions are not, you know, the way we measure carbon generally. Scope one emissions are those that a company produces themselves in their production process. Scope two are the ones that they consume through utilities they contract with. Scope three is kind of the more broader, all-encompassing, all the way down the supply chain measure of the carbon impact of one company on the world. So all the way down the ripple effects of what my company or yours produces, how much carbon is that changing the world? It's a really hard thing to measure. A lot of different data providers have taken different perspectives on this question. And generally, their answers right now are all pretty different. Estimates of scope three emissions from different places are all over the place, completely uncorrelated. We're thinking about how to do it internally ourselves. We're talking with third-party providers who do it different ways. It's a hard question, but it's a question that I believe is really the key to the next phase of climate research for investment risk. One last question before we get to a rapid fire round. How will four years of a president, Joe Biden, be different for those investors interested in sustainable investing? Well, look, policy expectations are important to our outlook, particularly on the climate side. They're not the only thing that's important. Market forces are really important, too. But I do think it's clear that a U.S. administration that is more amenable than past U.S. administrations to viewing climate risk as something that needs to be handled from a public policy level is likely to accelerate a lot of these trends that we've been talking about in terms of what the market's going to reward and penalize. Not only are we achieving better outcomes for the world via a set of these policies, but we're also training the markets to recognize companies that are better aligned with those good outcomes as more likely long-term outperformers. And that'll be reflected by investors recognizing that in a world where the United States is perhaps more Paris aligned than it has been over the past couple of years, that companies that are more Paris aligned are likely to face less regulatory risk and likely to be rewarded by their shareholders. And by Paris aligned, you mean more likely to help us enter a world that where we don't go beyond two degrees Celsius consistent with Paris Climate Agreement, even though the U.S. just left it. Exactly right. Okay. Rapid fire round. Are you ready? Best show you watched during the pandemic? I did not watch the Tiger King thing. I think the Tiger King era of the pandemic looked a little overstated. Totally agree. I've been very into Queen's Gambit of late. Cooking accomplishment of 2020 for you? I bought a grill. I've been cooking outside. I've been smoking things, much to the chagrin of my neighbors with open windows. But it's been quite (laughs) delightful for me. You live in New York City and you've been here the whole time during the pandemic, right? Yes. There's been a lot of chatter. New York City dead, alive, something in between. 
This city is very much alive, very much alive. Look at the people walking around our office now in a very professionally, socially distanced manner. I think there's a lot of good that's going to be happening to the life of this city on the back of this. The vibe of outdoor dining that's made us feel maybe a little European in a good way, mm -hmm. as I think, but a tremendous ad. And I hope it sticks around even once we get rid of the plastic partitions. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Two more. You recently got a puppy. I did. What's her name and the inspiration behind it? Well, her name is Pepper. It's short for pepperoni. The idea is that we say pepper when she's being good and we can castigate her with pepperoni when she's bad. <laughs> and is it working? Well, it's been two weeks, so I'll keep you posted. <laughs> well, On the next bid, we'll follow okay. it up. <laughs> and we end each episode of our sustainability meeting series with the same question to each of our guests. What's one moment that changed the way you think about sustainability? Well, you know, maybe I'll be a little boring here, but I think it's a really important answer that I want to remind everyone. Is the onset of COVID and the way that markets reacted, the natural experiment provided there was, I think, very powerful for illustrating the way that sustainability concerns are now being treated by the market, which is that it provides a certain amount of resilience, provides a certain amount of quality to use the factor investing parlance. That is a critical part of portfolios in the next era for financial markets. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you, MC. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44 020 77433000 registered in England and Wales number 2020394 for your protection telephone calls are usually recorded blackrock is a trading name of blackrock investment management uk limited in singapore this is issued by blackrock singapore limited co-registration number 2000101043n in Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management, Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. 
The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.